welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes, and soon I'll be bringing you conversations with some familiar faces from the BC and Yukon literary community. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Alex Van Toll. Alex co-wrote Great Bear Rainforest, a giant screen adventure in the land of the spirit bear with Ian McAllister. Great Bear Rainforest was a finalist for the 2020 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. How do you take an IMAX movie and turn it into a book? This was the challenge that Alex and Ian faced as they wrote this book to accompany the movie. But to tell the story of saltwater and cameras and rigs of umbrellas to protect equipment, Alex relied both on her skills as a nonfiction writer and a journalist to bring the story to life on the page. Alex Ventol is a Vancouver Island-based writer who's written over a dozen books for audiences of all ages and interests and hundreds of articles. As you'll hear in this conversation, Alex is also a lover of wild spaces, which is what drew her to working on Great Bear Rainforest. Alex starts our conversation by describing this beautiful book. Yes, the book Great Bear Rainforest, uh, a giant screen adventure in the land of the spirit bear is, it's really a behind the scenes look at what it takes to create an IMAX film in such a complex, demanding environment as a coastal temperate rainforest. And, and not even the type of coastal temperate rainforest that you find on Vancouver Island, but one that's two to three to four times as rainy. So there was quite a lot of, uh, quite a lot of technical adventure that went on for the production of the movie. And that's what the book really dug into. So how did you get involved with this project? Yeah, so I, w- I actually attended the BC Book Prizes Gala in, it would have been 2018. So that would have been spring, late spring 2018. And I was sitting at a table with Andrew Wildridge, who is the publisher at Orca Book Publishers. And we were also sitting with Ian McAllister and Deirdre Leonata at our table and a few other people. So it really was just a conversation. And over the course of the gala, which was awesome, we, you know, Ian was talking about his experience of working on this IMAX movie and where they were in production. And as part of his agreement, he had promised to write a book. And because Orca already has a great relationship with Ian McAllister as an author, it was just, it was perfect timing, right place, right time, right people. So Andrew was like, well, we can, we can help you with the publication of that book. And Ian was like, fantastic. I might need some help writing it because I'm in the throes of getting this movie filmed. And I was right there having had experience writing different kinds of books. And so it was, it just worked in perfect sync. So I was able to help Ian um, take that piece off his plate. What drew you to this project? Why were you so interested in being part of it? Well, Lots of reasons. Um, One being I have very high regard for the work that Ian has contributed into the natural history and ecology space, not just in British Columbia, but globally, his foresight. He's been living out in the Great Bear Rainforest on Denny Island. 
he and his wife, Karen, for decades, you know, shooting and uh, taking photographs and recording and documenting and trying to sort of help people understand what a beautiful jewel this is. So I have really high regard for Ian as a conservationist and super high regard for Orca as a publisher of really fine books for not just children anymore, but for general audiences. And I'd also had a little bit of crossing over with the Great Bear Rainforest because a couple of years prior, I had created a teacher guide for one of Orca's books about, about coastal temperate rainforest. It was Caitlin Vernon's book, Nowhere Else on Earth. So I already had a depth of knowledge. I wouldn't say depth. I had a, I had a sort of a surface knowledge of the Great Bear Rainforest and just an abiding interest in this natural business. So that definitely piqued my interest. Have you been to the Great Bear Rainforest? No, no. And that, I mean, it's criminal, right? I wrote this whole big book. But no, it it was sort of a, you know, it was a project on a quick turnaround. And I had also, you know, that summer, this was 2018, uh, that summer I was taking my my two sons basically across Canada. We had a paddling trip out on the Great Lakes. Uh, and so I, rem- you know, I was looking at my calendar going, oh, can I get up to the to the Great Bear Rainforest and, and, you know, really put my feet on the ground. I wanted to do that, right, to have that sort of extra bit of authenticity and, and groundedness for writing the story. But it didn't work out because Ian and his team were sort of all over the place, right? Summer is the time you want to capitalize on in the Great Bear Rainforest because maybe it's not going to be raining. So they, you know, they were out on their boats they weren't sure when they were going to be around. I was going to be, you know, five weeks on the road with my boys. So it was just a little bit too much to orchestrate. Luckily, I have been to the Great Bear Rainforest. So that was in 2019 when I went with a, uh, on a team retreat for a current client. And so I was able to go uh, and experience a bit of the rainforest then, which was amazing. I, I've never been to the Great Bear Rainforest. How would you describe it to someone like me who's never been? Oh, well, you're in Powell River, right, Megan? Yeah. So, um, you you know, you know the geography. And we've, you know, we've seen the, the films. We've seen a, everything that you see on the screen is very much what you see on the ground you know my opportunity was at Nemo Bay Wilderness Resort which is in the southern Great Bear Rainforest so uh, if you're on Vancouver Island it's essentially a float plane trip northeast just a little bit northeast of Port Hardy sorry not Port Hardy Port McNeil so it's sort of on the southern end so I would I would hazard a guess that it's a little less rainy by like maybe two (laughs) percent and we were there in May so it wasn't you know we had beautiful weather uh, but you can see just by looking around how how much it rains there and how lush everything is. You know, like here on the southern island, when I go off into the bush, I can see lots of ferns and lots of greenery. You know, in the Great Bear Rainforest, it's it's even more. You know, there's more rotting wood around. There's more. You know, everything seems to grow bigger. There's a lot more green on the ground, and it's it's a really, it's a mystical, beautiful, sacred space. Yeah. 
And one of the reasons, of course, that people go to the Great Bear Rainforest is to see a spirit bear. Have you had a chance to see a spirit bear? No, actually, I have not seen. I have not seen a bear since I left Alberta. I don't think. Wow. I'm just thinking, yeah, like since I've been out here and that was in 03. So I've been out here for almost 20 years and I haven't seen any bears in our forests. So no, no spirit bear for me. I have a feeling I would have to go farther north. They tend to sort of, you know, the greatest population uh, is sort of around, you know, Bella Bella. I think Princess Island comes to mind. I'd have to go back. I'd have to go back into the book to make sure. <laughs> But down on the south, in the southern parts of the Great Bear, there aren't as many spirit bears. What were some of the challenges you faced, or maybe you didn't face any, but in capturing, you know, this IMAX experience on uh, in a book, was that a challenge for you? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yes and no. No, because it was so interesting. And whenever, whenever I'm really interested in an idea, it, I'm in the zone. Right. And so I'm in flow. Uh, so it was great for that. The interviews I had with people were exceptional. You know, like I found, you know, I went for, I think, coffee with Tim Archer, who did a lot of the audio. And I could have sat with Tim for probably another seven hours just talking audio and, uh, you know, just to learn the different kinds of things he had to do to capture audio in the Great Bear and the way he, you know, would sort of affix his recording devices to trees and the umbrellas that they put over things and so it was so great you know it was no challenge at all to have amazing conversations with the people who had worked on the film and I interviewed Ian and uh, you know a few of the camera operators and um, you know the producer all of those interviews were exceptional and uh, and some of the indigenous people who were also part of the film so that felt easy. The, the challenging part was the more logistical end of actually pulling the manuscript together. Um, so sort of late spring, early summer, I was doing interviews and just sort of organizing the information. But when, I, when the time came to actually write the manuscript, I was already on the road with my two children. <laughs> so. Great Bear Rainforest was written in a series of campgrounds and truck stops. <laughs> I would, I remember we were camped at Sleeping Giant in Ontario, and that's it's a provincial park campsite right on the edge of um, Lake Superior. And of course, when I had chosen our campsite and and made the reservation, I hadn't been thinking about cell service. And I don't need Wi-Fi, but I definitely need cell service so that I can hotspot to my computer if I need to check a website. Or in that case, I was probably doing transcriptions, which I need to do through a website. <laughs> so for the few days that we were camped at Sleeping Giant, I would have to drive, I think it was 30 kilometers up the road, back to the Flying J truck stop. <laughs> <laughs> and I would sit in the parking lot with my laptop on my lap. And I did this for a couple of interviews, too. One with Saul Brown, who he's a Hiltzuk. A uh, man who's in the film. So yeah, I did a lot of work at the Flying J truck stop um, just outside of Thunder Bay. So that was that did make it a little bit tricky, a little bit challenging was just trying to figure out, you know, how do I get this draft written and submitted to my publisher so that they can keep going with their production timeline while I'm in the middle of not the Great Bear Rainforest. 
it sounds like these these stories are, are at least natural places uh, have a certain connection to you. Is it is it important for you to be involved in these stories and to tell these stories of of the natural world and and why they're so important to us? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. One of my earlier books, um, twenty fifteen, it came out. It's called Aliens Among Us, and that was um, published by the Royal BC Museum. And that was sort of my first foray into nonfiction books. But that one was really meaningful, sort of for the same reason, because it shines a light on, in the case of Aliens Among Us, it shines a light on the diversity of species that we have here in British Columbia. British Columbia, you know, one of our slogans, I think it's the, the tagline from the provincial government, you know, it's, or maybe it's tourism BC, but it's just beautiful BC. And there's like, it's the best place on earth. It really is. The caliber of our natural environment and, you know, the quality that still remains despite human invasion is staggering. And what I wanted to honor in writing Great Bear Rainforest was Ian's work, but also the work of other conservationists to shine that spotlight on this one little fragment of British Columbia's exceptional, you know, natural panorama. You know, the Great Bear Rainforest is not all protected yet. Um, there have been a lot of not-for-profit organizations that have worked for years and years to try and get that land protected from logging primarily, but resource extraction. And so part of the part of the work that Great Bear Rainforest, the film, was meant to do was to lift this special little part of the world, this last, you know, one of the last remaining intact coastal temperate rainforests in the world, and certainly the largest, um, to lift it into the public awareness so that we can just take two steps back and go, wait, we have a choice right now. We have a choice to either, you know, continue extracting from the waters and from the land, or we can really decide that, no, we don't want to. We don't want this one to disappear like the one in Chile disappeared and like the ones in Europe have disappeared. You know, we have a, we have the option of, of actually conserving and um, being a bit strategic about this. So, you know, back to your question about the importance of telling these stories. Yeah, in part, it was to tell the story of the land and, um, and the people who have been here for thousands and thousands of years living on that land harmoniously, um, but also to, to, to highlight the efforts of, you know, the people who've been trying to protect it. I wanted to ask a little bit about, I, I think maybe it was Ian who was quoted in the book as saying how important it was to tell the story, including Indigenous voices, to make sure the story was told with that lens. And I was curious how you uh, went about capturing that in the written part of it as he had with the, the film part of it. Yeah, and that's a really hugely important part of the story that Ian and his team never ever lost sight of. And you know, there were a lot of partnerships created before the filming of Great Bear Rainforest and a lot of partnerships that were deepened and enriched through the filming of, of Great Bear Rainforest. One thing we wanted to be sensitive to, you know, both as publisher and author and uh, filmmaker was, you know, this film is 
let's not make in the book, let's not make this another example of, oh, hey, you know, we're visitors to this place and wow, isn't it cool? And so we're going to tell the world about it, but, but and not being sensitive to the richness of the relationship between the land and the people that have predated settler culture. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of complexity there and a lot of different perspectives to keep in mind and to be, to be respectful of. With the book being the behind the scenes, it was really cool for me to be able to um, have some conversations with, I wanna say three or four different people um, and I don't know if they all made it into the book, but just to just to make sure that that we were being inclusive of everyone's voice, and also, you know, I made a uh, a decision when I was when I was writing the book to have Saul Brown's voice be a very strong voice, um, and he's a young Heltzuk man who's very is very concerned about that relationship between you know, whose story is this to tell? And can this story please be told the right way in the way that we think is, is just and, and serves the surrounding environments and the people the best? So I wanted to, you know, sort of finish on his note of, you know, we've been here for a long time and we've walked hand in hand with the land and we've always done it respectfully with the land. And now we're going to, you know, reclaim that relationship and and really sort of step back into that stewardship role and it, yeah it just seemed like it seemed like a good a good place to um to finish the book was on his his looking forward to the way things kind of need to be yeah yeah it's interesting you're in talking with you it's bringing up like it seems like there were a few books on the on the shortlist this year that really kind of spoke to those those stories and experiences like Alejandra Freed's book was very much about that too about working with the indigenous communities and and recognizing what tremendous knowledge they have that we've kind of been very dismissive of for so long mm -hmm. and how important it is to to tell those stories and to finally listen because we're not doing a very good job of that right now that's right what you just said to finally listen you know i think listening is where it starts instead of having the answers instead of instead of telling the stories it's actually listening for those stories um, and listening for those experiences. Yeah. Uh, are there any stories that still linger with you now? I, it's probably been a, a few years or a couple years since you've done these interviews, but are there any that, you know, still come to mind all that time afterwards? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> speaking with Ian McAllister is, is, is always quite funny because he's he's so understated, you know, and I remember one day, having a conversation with him about what, you know, my questions that day were like, what were some of the challenges of filming underwater? <laughs> Ian was telling me about the sea lions and, you know, a couple of instances, one in particular where he was, you know, he's all suited up and he's down at the bottom of the, of the ocean with his camera and, and he's surrounded by sea lions. So he's quite still and, you know, respectful of course. And he said the sea lions, you know, the, the, the best way they have of figuring out what's in their space is to, is to put their mouth on it. So he said, you know, the, the moment where a sea lion puts its mouth over your head 
<laughs> so they could <laughs> you. And he's like, you know, you just kind of have this feeling that they could squish it like a grape if they wanted to. But no, they just kind of want to know what it is. I remember just listening to that and going, I'm pretty sure I'd have a heart attack right then and there if, if a large sea creature came and put its mouth over my whole head. But, you know, for him, that was just a, a, day, uh, a day in the life. So that was one that stayed that stood out for me. Another one was again where he's at the bottom um, and he was trying so hard to capture uh, herring. And he said, you know, when they get going in their big schools, it's it's messy, right? You can't really get a very good shot unless you kind of hit it right at the beginning, because once they get going swimming, there's all kinds of there's poo and there's sediment from the bottom and there's it just gets really mucky. But he was talking about when, a, you know, a huge school of herring kind of came up from behind and, and caught him off guard. And he said it was so powerful, like the current as they went by, that it flattened him right against the bottom of the ocean, like in the darkness, just something came up behind him and just went boom, <laughs> like wow. pinned him against the bottom. And he's like, yeah, you just wait until, wait until you've got enough strength to sit back up. So those were a couple of stories from, from Ian that I loved. Um, Deirdre had amazing stories too. I mean, she just worked in every possible role um, with, with such a commitment and grace. Like she really was sort of the operative, you know, um, keeping the, the boats running and, you know, making sure the Zodiacs had people and making sure people were fed. And she just wore so many different hats that I, I built such high regard for her. And then there's a good story in the book about a, a storm. Uh, and I won't tell it because I think Ian tells it better in the book, but you know, there were some real nail biters uh, out there. It wasn't all filming in the summer, you know, they were out there in the winter and there was one storm in particular that, yeah, it was like six of one, half a dozen of the other. We might actually not come out of this one. So there were some pretty gripping stories. How did working on this project compare? I know you've written a number of, of other books. How did it compare to the other projects you've worked on? Hmm. Well, everyone, I'm sure you hear this all the time from authors, right? Every, every book is different. Um, but between the nonfiction and the fiction, there definitely are differences. Um, the process is completely different. Um, with fiction, you know, you really have to drop in and stay in the zone for a while. You know, that's why you hear writers talking about having big tracts of uninterrupted time for thinking, not just for creating. With nonfiction, it doesn't have to be that. With nonfiction, you know, you can kind of tackle it in small sections. So it worked out really well that, you know, yes, I had a road trip happening during that summer. So I was driving for much of the day and then getting camp set up. And it would have been really hard to write a novel with that flow in my life because I just wouldn't have had that mental space to drop in. But with nonfiction, you can you can take it section by section um, and you've got your notes right there, right? Like, here's what this person said. Here's what this person said. How do I connect this quote with a little bit of narrative so that it leads into the next thing, you know, writing sidebars. So everything kind of comes in little discrete packages, which is one of the things I really love about nonfiction. You know, I also write for businesses and I also write for magazines so both of those they you know they come from that space of small uh smaller more discreet stories still but they're not 
part of a really big narrative arc that you kind of have to keep going in your head. Um, so for Great Bear, yeah, I was able to write, you know, perhaps a section from one of the last chapters, and then I would be able to add to a section from one of the first chapters and not feel like I was jumping all over the place. Did you learn anything about yourself as a writer through this process that, you know, you're going to use on your next project? Hmm. You ask really good questions, Megan. <laughs> and I, I will say this because I, I interview people constantly. Did I learn anything? Yeah, I'm continually learning about the importance of deadlines and obviously still have to keep learning this lesson over and over because I'll set myself deadlines. And if I don't keep them, then, you know, I end up rushing and, and having to, you know, drop other things in order to meet my work commitments. So I would say that's a continuous learning thing for Alex Bantol. Yeah, I mean, I just, I learned you know, I already had really high regard for people who have uh, an abiding interest in capturing the specialness of the outdoors. But I really did come away from these interviews with, you know, the people who, who work on IMAX films with a real regard for um, their flexibility, their fluidity, their professionalism, their complete depth of expertise in their fields, whether it's, you know, fixing a camera that has frozen because of salt water, you know, just trying different things, you know, and in the book, we've got some really great pictures, Orca did such a beautiful job of, of laying it out. There's some really amazing pictures of, yeah, the camera rigs, you know, there's a picture of Jeff Turner, and I think it's he's with Andy Mazur, and they've got, uh, you know, there's like, this sort of rigged umbrella that they've, that they've, jimmied together over top of a camera and it's covered with the umbrella is covered with plastic you know and it was just like a constant experiment so I love learning about how how professionals deepen their expertise in the field as they are troubleshooting because that's life right I mean wow one of the beautiful things about writing a behind the scenes book um, I mean I think I would write 10 more behind the scenes I'm always way more interested in behind the scenes and I think we see that too with like consumer and, and viewer behavior online, right? Like people love to know how things are made. People love to know how things are deconstructed. People love to know what is real, you know, what is behind that green curtain. And I think that's because we really enjoy each other's stories and, and what makes us unique and what makes us tick in creating a final project uh, and a final product. So yeah, I learned a lot about um, other people, a little bit less about my own writing process, just because I've, you know, I'm, I'm accustomed to working in all kinds of different environments, like actual physical environments, and on all different kinds of projects. So yeah, less about me, but just much more about the amazing people that um, made this film happen. Thanks so much to Alex for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. And if you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with another Alex, Alex Olin, author of Dual Citizens, which was a finalist for the 2020 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.